If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hi, I'm Anna from the Institute of Art and Ideas, and I'm interrupting the start of this podcast episode to let you know that there'll be an exclusive interview at the end of this episode with one of the producers from How the Light Gets In, who'll be letting us know what we can expect from the science lineup this year and how Philosophy for Our Times listeners can get a special price. So stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. Uh, Now, I hope no one will deny, I don't think anyone here will be denying, that materialism is actually pretty successful in um, giving us theories of the world that work. This week, our speakers will test this success to see whether materialism can do justice to explaining our everyday experience. The trouble is that our theories of physics seem to start talking about things that, uh, in the everyday sense, seem quite nebulous. Fields, or, or about how space and time might somehow be bootstrapped into existence from the relationships between particles. Meanwhile, we don't really understand quite where we fit into this, how consciousness and experience of qualities comes from quarks and photons. How then is materialism limited? Can it explain what subjective experience is and what it is to be conscious? Or what can we get by going beyond materialist philosophies? There's no way we can predict what people are going to think about this in 100 years from now, but is there any reason in the here and now to question whether materialism needs to be extended in some way? And is science the only arbiter of that question? Questioning this in the here and now, we have CERN physicist John Ellis, closure theorist Hilary Lawson, and consciousness author Susan Blackmore. We would love to hear what you thought of this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. In particular, please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating so other people can find us. Do subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. And of course, tell anyone you know that might be interested. 
Back now to Philip Ball, who hosts this week's episode. Has the materialist, materialist view been successful, yet profoundly mistaken? And first off is Hillary. Thank you. So uh, materialism has a wonderful down-to-earth sort of quality to it um, by comparison with the seemingly rather mystical uh, notion of the immaterial and mind and consciousness and mind of God and so forth. But I think that materialism is just as fantastic a story as uh, immaterialism. Science has, from the outset, relied on the immaterial. So Newton in his uh, initial framing of science, really kicking off contemporary science and providing the framework that is still used, of course, um, uh, relies on forces. Forces were at the time when he first suggested this, he was criticized for being mystical and not sufficiently mechanical. He also relied on time and space. Uh, there's also mathematics, not obviously very material. Um, and the laws of the universe themselves, what are they? Where are they in this materialist universe? So from the outset, immater the immaterial has been embedded in science. And there are some materialists who've tried to get round this puzzle because they just don't like this. Uh, it's not sort of grounded enough. So they tried to get round this by expanding the idea of material to include all of these other things, to include time and space and and mathematics and so forth. And the problem with that is that if you extend material to include all of these things, it's no longer obvious what you mean by material at all. And I don't think you have any content to the term. So if the world isn't material, and incidentally, there's another problem, which is I think that, that the, a, a purely materialist account of the universe is incoherent because it can't give an account of where the materialist theory is itself. But just as an, uh, as an aside, really. So, w if, it's not, if the world's not material, what is it? Well, people have had you know, a variety of proposals. Uh, it's uh, mind. Um, as, as I say, some people have suggested it's mathematics. Uh, a, a recent uh, arrival on the block is uh, people are now saying it's information. Um, so, people have had all sorts of ideas about what the world is, is made of. And uh, you can make a good case for all of them. You can develop the narrative, you can make a good case, uh, it can sound plausible, but they all break down because they're human concepts. They're not the nature of the world. And what our concepts are doing and what our language is doing is not describing some ultimate reality. It's enabling us to do things in the world. They're tools to enable us to do things. And if you hold the world as uh, a material thing, then you build the world like that, and you try and make everything material. You, you operate within that closure, as I would argue. And within that closure, you create your system, and um, you can do a pretty good job of it. But there are lots of bits of it that just don't work, that you can't quite make any sense of thought, you quite uh, make any sense of uh, other areas of your, your overall account. If instead you start with immaterialism, you say the world is all mind, well, you know, there are some good people in the history of philosophy who's had a very good attempt to account for how the world could be all mind. Uh, 
So in each case, you can develop the closure. You can hold the world as if it's all material. You can hold the world as if it's all immaterial. You can hold the world as energy. You can hold the world as uh, mathematics. And as I say, some people are having a go at ha holding the world as information, which I have to say I don't think works very well. But nevertheless, um, th th they're plausible narratives but they will always break down because they are not descriptions of reality. They're the tools we use to describe reality. And uh, that's why it's none of these things. We can't, with language, say what is the ultimate stuff of the universe. What we can do is we can hold the universe in all of these different ways and achieve different things with those different ways of holding it. Thank you. John, over to you. Yeah, well, uh, needless to say, I'm the, uh, the dummy who's a thoroughgoing materialist on this panel. As I said before, you know, my T-shirt, that describes the stuff in the universe. But actually, not, not all the stuff in the universe. But uh, I think in your introduction, you mentioned quarks and photons. And so, so, so they're in there, OK? Uh, there's some stuff which we don't yet know what it is, uh, stuff that we call dark matter. And uh, I like to joke that that's that bit up there. Because <laughs> there's more of it. There's, yeah. there's a lot, lot more of it, yeah. And uh, then we also talk about dark energy. I'm not sure whether dark energy qualifies as stuff or not. So, of course, what I have written on my T-shirt is going to be largely incomprehensible to, to most people in the audience, right? And that's because it's, it's written in a very mathematical language. And... Uh, so just to sort of point, make a, one point of contact with what uh, Hillary just said, uh, you know, mathematics for us materialists is a, is a tool for uh, describing or understanding or manipulating or using uh, knowledge of this stuff. Uh, so you know, it, it is a, a tool that we use in our materialist description, although I certainly agree with, with, uh, with what Hillary said, that it's not actually material in itself. Um, one interesting thing is that our, our concept of what is material, I think, has evolved significantly in the uh, in the last century. So, so, so Hillary talked, you know, for example, about uh, Newton, who I think had a rather different concept uh, of what is material from what you know nowadays in the quantum mechanical world we we see as, as material. And for example, uh, we now see a connection between particles and, and fields that uh, was uh, you know, un unknown to, to, to Newton. But of course, what's written on my T-shirt does not explain everything. Right? And it's a very important aspect of our uh, materialist description of the universe, which is the concept of emergence, the phenomena that emerge from the complicated interactions of what is, what, what is written on my T-shirt. OK, so, so this picture, I would claim, is very successful. I would claim it is not mistaken because it works. You know, it enables us to make you no know, mobile phones and uh, no electric cars and so on and so forth. It's not mistaken, but I agree that it's limited. Okay, and uh, I'm not sure whether it really provides us with understanding. It provides us with description. It, it addresses questions like you know what, where, when, and how, but not why. And, and I think this is one of the key shortcomings that Hillary is concerned about. Thank you. Over to you, Susan. Well, materialism, from the point of view of someone interested in, obsessed with consciousness, materialism has its obvious problem. It gives rise to the so-called hard problem of consciousness. How does 
subjective experience arise from objective activities in a brain? I think it's a misposed question, because ultimately we have to get rid of this duality. Materialism can't account for subjective experience, and idealism can't account for the, the, the material world at all easily. Can experience in any way, practicing different experiences to look into the nature of the universe, help at all? Well, here's my adventures at the moment. I would say I'm a bit obsessed. I'm glad to be invited on this panel because I'm a bit obsessed in an ignorant, exploring kind of way about the stuff of the universe. So one thing I, I tend to do, this time of year, it would be in my greenhouse late at night. I've been working hard all day, like the song goes, I sure, sure get stoned at night. And I um, have a spliff and sit there and start thinking. Now, one of the ways this will go will be, okay, do that meditation thing I'm used to, drop duality. I can't do it intellectually, but I can do it experientially. Self disappears into stuff, there's just stuff happening. Now, that's fine, as I said, it's an experience, but I don't know how to make that work as a kind of a, of a theory. And um, what I then can start to think about one direction to go is, well, where does the material fit in this? If you think about a scientist or me, you know, even doing experiments and so on, all you've ever got is somebody's experience, even if that's looking into a Hadron Collider or looking at the, the readouts of, of, uh, uh, of instruments. So that, that pushed me over to the idealism side, but then I think, well, how can we agree? And you've both touched on this in a way, because we agree, certainly about mathematics, on another planet, you know, other aliens wouldn't call them electrons and protons, but they'd presumably discover something similar. So I'm forced into a kind of absolutely no idea what this stuff is, but we are agreeing about it somehow. This is a very deep, I don't know. Here's another one. This is another one founded in meditation, uh, and I've only recently um, uh, begun to explore this. There's a classic Zen koan that says, look behind your own face. And until recently, I thought that was just some kind of metaphor, because a lot of koans actually take you off in all kinds of weird directions. But I found myself on a recent retreat literally doing that. And it was a very, very weird experience, because it felt as though I was looking from the outside in, as well as looking from the inside out. And it had different kinds of weirdness depending where I was, whether I was just in silent meditation or walking around in the silent retreat. Um, but interestingly, what I saw has been described, it's, I mean, it's supposed to be ineffable, you can't really say much about it. The best description I've ever read was a man who was poisoned by morphine in Thailand, and he woke up in a horrible hospital with dirt everywhere, and you know, very happy and content, and he said, it's as though the back of my head has been sawn off, and behind is the dazzling darkness. Now, my experience was of seeing kind of an intense nothingness, a nothingness with a nothingness that somehow seemed to be alive. And I guess this may be something like what people are talking about, the ground of being, or something of that kind. I don't know. But experientially, it's really, really interesting to explore these things. But this gave the impression that it is out of this alive nothingness that comes behavior and talking and all the kinds of things, and the duality of the illusion of self and all the other dualisms that come about. But, but what is it? I mean, you know, it's, it's to say something completely unhelpful, really. There's a kind of something, nothing out of which everything comes doesn't really get you anywhere. But I throw out these experiences uh, in case they're at all relevant. And really, my only pitch is, 
I'm really struggling with this one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, first of all, as good philosophers should, we should probably define our terms and clarify what we mean when we talk about materialism, because as Hillary said, it's, it does seem to have broadened. In Newton's time, it, the idea was that uh, it was all kind of little particles of stuff and it was all somehow coming out from this. And of course now, and for, since the, the, the 19th century, that notion has broadened into ideas of fields. And in some ways, um, physical theories can seemingly all be constructed in terms of fields. So I wonder that what we're going to talk about now is what is reality made of? What is this material? And John, I wonder if you can start by explaining, you know, from the physicist's point of view, how we think about materiality now. Yeah, well, I, I, as I uh, said earlier on, I think we moved on from Newton. So uh, we no longer think only in terms of just little bits doing their thing. And uh, so Hillary has already mentioned how uh, the idea of force and so on was introduced by, uh, by Newton. And those forces nowadays we uh, describe in terms of what we call fields. I think people have, know, have some sort of vague idea maybe of what an electromagnetic field is. Uh, they don't want to be too close to a, a microwave antenna, maybe, or a gravitational field. The Earth goes around the sun because it feels the gravitational field. But now we go beyond that, and we see that, you know, to use your term, there is actually a sort of duality between particles and fields. And uh, I already mentioned this uh, earlier, that one of the revolutions of quantum mechanics is this uh, dual description in terms of, of fields and particles. So it, it's certainly true that our... Uh, formulation of this materialistic description has changed over the last century and I would presume that the description that we currently have is also provisional it's going to be you know out of date I'm not quite sure you know when it's going to become out of date but maybe it won't become out of date because before I do but anyway uh, I, I just want to maybe pick up on, on one thing which is this issue of, of consciousness and mind so uh, let me throw another stone into the pond. Mm. I, I, I talked earlier on about emergent phenomena, and, and I personally believe, of course I have no proof, that consciousness and mind will eventually turn out to be emergent phenomena from these physical processes described by stuff on my T-shirt. Can, I, can I pick up on that? If you're Please do, yes. Um, yes. Lots of people very glibly say, and I'm not accusing you of that, but lots of people very glibly say, oh, it's an emergent phenomenon. You have cautiously said it will turn out. Now, if you think about emergence, I mean, I think about something simple like wetness emerging from the properties of water or something. It took a very long time to work out why and to understand the, um, the physics and the chemistry to, to get to understand, I don't know, surface tension or whatever um, as, em as emergent. But somehow mind... I mean, this is the whole problem of mind-body dualism. It seems so utterly different from physical things. Can you s plot any kind of a way that this, you said eventually it would turn out. Have you got any thoughts about how it would turn out? Because wouldn't that be fantastic if we could see how this uh, mind-body dualism could be overcome by showing how it, it could emerge? You probably got the wrong person to try to uh, provide you with an answer to that. No, this is not something which I work on that I thought about uh, at all deeply. I, I think it, actually we're now at a very interesting stage when this is actually coming to the scientific fore, so to speak. Mm. So uh, people are thinking a lot now about artificial intelligence, uh, about deep learning. And I think that uh, 
Now, out of that will emerge all sorts of new intuition uh, about how at least parts of the brain function actually come about. Now, whether this will, will really get as far as what you're interested in, I don't know. But I think it, it is at least potentially an inroad into how you know, emergent phenomena occur inside our skulls. It's the emergence that I can't get. I mean, what seems to me that the more we learn about how the brain works, the more problematic consciousness is. So we can now look in brains and see, oh, this person is difficult and it requires a lot of stuff, but um, and a lot of maths as well. But we can say, ah, that person's thinking about a pink elephant. Oh, and now he's thinking about a frog. And now he's thinking about last week in wherever he was. And you can actually see this in individuals with a lot of prior work. So, and we also know, you know, decision making going on here, as I was talking about the TPJ, where the self schema is, is, is constructed in the right temporoparietal junction, we're learning more and more and more. So in terms of what the brain's doing and the structures and how it gives rise to saying, I am thinking about the problem of emergence, we can get there. But, the look of your lovely hair as I sit here and it's shining. I was, I'm in the admiring light. yours, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mutual adoration. That's great. Uh, that's what we want on a panel. Um, you know, that experience, how that would emerge, what that would mean for it to emerge, that remains, well, becomes even more problematic to me the more we understand what the brain's doing. But there are. Sorry, uh, yes, please, do you? Yeah. So I, I think all we are seeing here, I say all, I don't mean that critically, but what we're seeing here is the playing out of alternative closures. If you adopt a materialist closure, you obviously are focused on producing an account which in the end accounts for everything in terms of material. So John is obviously in the mode of saying, in the future, we'll sort out the problems. You know, the materialist account may not account for everything at the moment, but we'll work out how it's going to do it. I, I'm not Similarly, even sure it will eventually explain everything either. Okay, okay fair enough. So, but, but uh, similarly, um, uh, accounts that have been given in terms of the mind have tried to uh, account for everything, but they're unable to do so. We shouldn't, therefore, as a result of thing, this think, and this is, in a way, I think, trying to help your puzzle, it, it's so complex. No, it's not, it's not that it's complex because it all seems to go, go wrong. It's complex because you, I think, are imagining that we might get to one answer which would describe reality. We can't do that. The frameworks of our thought, our conversations that we're having, the theories that we have, are ways of intervening in the world. They are not descriptions of the world. They're ways of holding it. And actually, Heisenberg, uh, on uh, obviously uh, as the founder of uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, um, uh, came across this fundamental problem of, of particles and fields. And he took the radical philosophical view of abandoning reality. He said, we don't require reality to get natural science to work. And I I'm on the Heisenberg side of this argument. I don't think we need to think that there is some ultimate stuff out there which our theories are somehow able to reach through. I mean, after all, they're human concepts. They're just things that happen in our brain. The idea that something that is going on in us could somehow be the very structure of the universe and somehow in some ideal materialist universe that some bit of my brain happens to have exactly the same structure as the structure of the material universe out there. 
seems to me implausible. I mean, that's not uh, how it is. And that's just a function of um, the way that we think. We think what we do is we generate language, uh, theories, uh, I would say closures, and those enable us to do things. So if we have a material story about the world, we can indeed do all sorts of amazing things. But as, not everything. As, as, as John said, but not everything. And there are other stories, some of which uh, Susan was uh, ide identifying, where a consciousness story is a much more valuable way of understanding what's going on and enables us to intervene. And if somebody wants to say, well, we should think of the world in a different way altogether, well, let's see what the consequences of that frame is. But let's not imagine that any of these frames are going to somehow reach through and, and find some ultimate stuff up there. I think we just have to give up on that theological idea that there is something at the end of our theories which we are uncovering. Well, so are you um, advocating giving up closures? Are you advocating being more flexible and being able to take this kind of closure today and this closure tomorrow? Or that you just stick with one and know its limitations? Uh, I think that what closures do is they hold the world as things. That's what we do. But how we do hold we best live our lives? Things. There aren't things out there. You know, uh. Whatever is out there, it's not divided into things. Any combination of things, however complicated combination of things. And I think that what our closures do is they enable us to hold the world by holding it as things. And yes, so I think w in order to be able to intervene in the world, we need to have things. But we shouldn't imagine that those things that we create with our closures are actually what's out there. How, that's, that's, how not, that's not going to work. So, Hilary, how then do you evaluate the relative merits of those different closures? Because a materialist would say, well, actually, our position, you know, clearly we can demonstrate the merit of that because we can make stuff that works. We can predict things that are going to happen. Um, can you find a similar criterion for alternative ways? Yes, I, I think the, you, you evaluate them in exactly the way you say it. You say, does it work? So the way that you evaluate a model is not to say, is reality really like that? Because you can't peer through to reality. You just say, does it work? Does it work? Does it enable me to account for the observations that I make in the context of this model? Because all model, all observation is context dependent, is theory dependent. So within the context of the frame, in, in, within the context of the closure, does it work? And if it doesn't work, we modify it. And indeed, I mean, the whole, whole of science is built on this. The brilliance of Newton as he comes up with this framework and uh, in the cri there were critics initially who said, but, it, but it's circular, Isaac. You know, uh, it, you tell us that the apple falls off the tree because of gravity, and we can't identify gravity, and it's a sort of, you know, a, a mystical idea. And then you, but most of the apples are still on the tree. And then you tell us, well, that's because there's another force which we also can't see and we also can't identify, uh, which is holding it there. And any counterexample, any he's counter identifying any it. counterexample you get, what do we do? It's we a, just it's make a second up, line. We just make up a new force. And if you think we've stopped doing that, we've done that in big time recently with dark energy. We've, we've found an observation which is the, world, the universe is accelerating away from us faster than we uh, thought was possible. And so we've invented a new force which is 70% of the entire universe. We have no evidence for this and we're not going to be able to identify it. And that's how science works. It invents things in order to sustain its model. And then it asks, and then it puts it through the sieve and asks how well that idea and stands. And they answer how it works. And, and I'm all in favour of it. So I'm not in any way saying there's anything wrong with this. That's exactly what should happen. 
the, the power of it is that we invent new closures which enable us to refine our model, refine our narrative in order to be able to get it to work. But let's give up on the theology that our human constructions and our human theories have somehow reached through to how it ultimately is. They're not. John, have you seen any evidence that persuades you that something more is needed beyond the, the standard model, literally, that we have in science at the moment? Oh, oh for sure, yes. Right. So, uh, okay, as a materialist, I, I still think in terms of bits, I still think in terms of things. Sorry, Hilary, I think things are real, at least in the sense that I use real, maybe not the sense that you use real, but at least in, in my sense. Uh, but, but this leaves all sorts of open questions. Like, for example, we know that there is matter, stuff in the universe, but we don't know how it originated. Uh, as I already commented, we, we know that there is some phenomenon associated with gravity that we call dark matter, and we don't know what that is. Uh, so you know, there are certainly you know, very important open questions. But I, I would like to, to thank Hillary for accepting that the materialist point of view has certain you know, successes. Right? It's massively powerful. Right. Do, uh, yeah, I really, you know, my, my I'm not in any way criticizing the idea of science or indeed the methodology. I'm just criticizing what I think is the theology that it is uncovering the essential character of the universe. It is a brilliant way of creating models, models that enable us to intervene, to achieve things. Absolutely, we should do that. Um, we should focus on empiricism. We should focus on reason. We need to do all of those things. But uh, we don't need to have this idea that we've, we, we are arriving at the uh, ultimate description. And indeed, all of the evidence suggests that it isn't, because whatever we've thought is the ultimate then turns out not to be. I certainly don't think we arrived at the ultimate description because, as I said, there's all sorts of lacunae, things, you know, questions that we can formulate that we don't yet know the, uh, the answers to. But you know, I would again kick back. You know, science has enabled us to discover things that happen in the universe, and in fact enabled us to calculate those things before the information reached us, and the information is in agreement with the predictions. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the discovery a couple of years ago of gravitational waves. This is an absolutely mind-boggling thing, if you think about it, that uh, you know, Einstein you know, realized that Newton's theory was limited in its domain of application. He found a theory which has a broader domain of application. The first piece of evidence was some tiny little peculiarity in the motion of Mercury around the sun, and now, we know that there are massive black holes out there in the universe which every once in a while collide and cause space and time to shake. I mean, that's, I think, truly an Earth-shaking discovery. And it's real. <laughs>
on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, the, the question we are supposed to ask, and I think we're getting onto it already, is why, why does our materialist worldview run into problems? Now, we, I think we should probably ask, does our materialist worldview run into problems? And can you, uh, do, do you have an example? Well, yes, I, I very briefly stated at the beginning, but the whole of the so-called hard problem of consciousness is one of those. And the hard problem, the, the term was coined by uh, Dave Chalmers back in 1994, and it has driven a whole lot of research, um, including Francis Crick's early work on neural correlates of consciousness and so on. The great mystery, it seems to be, is how can we relate objective to subjective? It's classic problem for materialism, because my experience, let's take your pink shirt. Is it pink? Uh, could be purple. It's a very good example because I bet some people will see that as pink and some as purple. Everybody has a slightly different visual system. Some of you men here will, uh, will be dichromats, so you won't be able to distinguish red and green in the same way. Some may be monochromats. Most of people here are trichromats, but we're all a little bit different. Um, nobody can know... Nobody else can share my experience of what that color looks like. I know this is obvious, but it's a fundamental problem in consciousness studies, amongst many other problems. We can't answer the questions we ask. We can't say, is he conscious? Are you conscious? I would say he is. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, whether he says he is or not, well, he's gone all silent now. But, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but he doesn't want to get himself in trouble. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, we can't know. When we ask questions like, um, I've just done a massive book on consciousness that had a whole section on animal minds. You know, when we ask, does a cow suffer when you put it in and, you know, hold it in a horrible thing? We think so because we have some kind of empathy, but we might be completely wrong. Lots of experiments have shown that surprisingly chickens aren't particularly disturbed by not having any litter on the ground, even though they prefer it. And, you know, think you could do these experiments, but we can't really answer the question. And then, of course, we come on to artificial intelligence. Uh, can consciousness, can an artificial intelligence be, uh, intelligence be conscious? How do we even find out? Um, we don't have any way, we, if we had a theory of how one arises from the other, this emergence thing, we might be able to answer the question, but at the moment we don't. So the whole of consciousness studies has, did become mired in this question. And then, so that's one half, not half, one big lot of people concerned about the hard problem and trying to solve the hard problem. And then another whole lot of people, including Dan Dennett, Nick Humphrey, myself, and a, whole, and a, and a subgroup called illusionists, of which I would be one, that we're completely deluded about this, and it's because we're trapped into this materialism versus immaterial, or mind versus matter, or body versus mind, you know, whatever. Um, we're deluded because evolution has seen fit to construct us with illusions of self. It helps us get around in the world. It helps us do things efficiently, but it's not true. We believe in a self in here who's looking out through the eyes, who has free will, which clearly to me, can't have, um, and uh, um, has a stream of consciousness. All that is a kind of delusion that we've invented, um, and maybe we can get out of it. Hence, me doing you know these personal experiments with non-duality. Um, so that but is one, an example. Why not, in a way, uh, solve that problem of there being 
the sort of incompatible frames of the mm. immaterial material and just think of them as being different frames. Yes, you I can, can do can that, and I'm it. thinking about that from uh, what uh, you uh, said. Uh, so uh, I can flip from one to the other. I can flip from, oh, let's understand all about the brain and so on, and then I can flip to sitting in meditation and exploring the experience and so on. Those are different frames. Uh, but uh, I'm not happy with that. Uh, you so, might so, be, so, but I'm not. Oh no. So, so, so that's, ma that's ma maybe we got to the one bit, which is the religious bit. Why are we not happy with it? <laughs> so, so when the Enlightenment came along and, and somehow got rid of religion, and not for everybody, apologies for those who saw and it's come back. to it, but yep. in, in large part did, people felt bereft. They thought, but I, I don't know where I am anymore. There's no God. You know, there's no, you know, I will be a lost. I will be at sea. And I think that's the same, exactly the same with reality and truth, that, that um, we are attached to the idea that there is some ultimate stuff, and we've replaced the Enlightenment God with a method of somehow getting it, this ultimate stuff, but we, we can't get it. It's exactly the same thing. It's a sort of, it's a sort of um, ultimate point that we can't arrive at. And, but we don't need to be frightened of giving it up. Uh, we, uh, giving up uh, the ideal there's a single thing out there, instead of thinking the world is open it has potential. We can close it in all sorts of different ways with our closures and our narratives. And each of those enable us to do different things and achieve different things makes of the world a one of potential and the idea that there's, there's nothing that we couldn't do if we could just find a way to hold it like that. Um, and of course, it's not saying there's nothing, you know, there's somehow nothing out there. It's just that it doesn't come ready-packed in terms of the things, because that's how we think. We think in terms of things, and that's never going to be the same as whatever is, is there. But you're kind of implying that I want there to be one kind of thing, or one kind of stuff, or something like that. Yeah. But let me go back to a lot of your argument, what, what we can do with this, because what you're implying is that if you take a frame, what's useful about it is it enables you to do something, and you take another frame and it enables you to do something else, Fine, but I want to be able to jump from one to the other, and that's the difficulty. If I want to know, for example, is it cruel to you know, treat chickens in this particular way or something, I want to know whether they're capable of suffering. And that is jumping from one frame to the other. And how do I do that? I have to invent a broader frame, and that's really all I'm doing. Not saying I can find ultimate reality, but I can't even see a way to make a broader frame well, that I will help me cross that. you're not going to be able to make it. People have been trying to make broader right, frames so you're saying for they the are, last 10,000 years of civilization. Everyone thinks they're about to get the right answer. Many, many people have thought, you know, we're just on the verge of getting a theory of everything. We're just on the... Go it's not going to happen. But you are we making a know. claim we about the ultimate... We all not going to happen. Well, we're not going to get to the point where we can close can down can I, I, I want to know if John knows. John thinks it's going to happen. Well, I have... No, a lot of sympathy with what uh, Hillary is saying, uh, but uh, equally I have sympathy with what Susan is saying. Very diplomatic. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> my, my wife accuses me of being diplomatic. <laughs> so, so, so I think you know, the, the way that the way that I see things, to to to, to choose a, a topical analogy, is like rain falling on the ground. Right. So no individual raindrops fall. These are patches of understanding or knowledge, or uh, description. Right. And then as more rain falls, these things connect up. So the different patches you know, percolate. Uh, and eventually, you, know, you might, if you're lucky or unlucky, have the entire paving stone covered with water. So let me take an example from the contemporary materialistic description of the universe. So I, I talked a moment ago about the fantastic success of Einstein's theory of general relativity describing black holes. Amazing. 
what we talked earlier about quantum mechanics. And as has been said, you know, at the moment, we can't sort of construct some bridge between these two, some theory that reconciles these two. And I personally have been for a long time convinced that when we eventually do find that sort of overarching theory which unifies quantum mechanics and, uh, and general relativity, that one or the other or both of them will turn out to be not quite right. Okay, I think that's, that's more or less inevitable. And uh, w w whether that's going to happen anytime soon, I don't know. Uh, and you were saying that you know throughout history there have been physicists saying that we're almost you know, we've almost got there, right? And uh, that was certainly something that a lot of people were saying, you know, Lord Kelvin and all sorts of other you know, old physicists back at the uh, end of the 19th century. Uh, but but I'm not saying that, and I I don't think Hawking was saying that either. I, I think that uh, you know there is, and maybe soon we will arrive at a theory which is more complete. Know, with fewer patches than what we have now. But to get to the ultimate theory, as I commented in an earlier debate, I think that is an aspiration rather than an immediately attainable objective. So, so it sounds as though perhaps you're suggesting that the, the frustration maybe that Susan has is, is maybe you're a bit impatient to have all this joined up and you're yeah, not, not waiting for the dots patience, to yeah. join up you know because one could say well what you're saying is that there are some things that science still doesn't have the answers to um but why leap ahead and and decide that actually it's not going to find those answers we're going to need immaterialism in some sense to to find those answers rather than just accepting that these are you know we, we don't have a scientific explanation of consciousness yet Dan Dennett has described the problem of consciousness as the only remaining mystery, or the last remaining mystery for science. I think that's an exaggeration, but what he meant by mystery was something that we don't yet know how to investigate. So we have problems in science, we have questions, and would you say that the split between quantum mechanics and relativity is like that, that we don't know where to... Is that a genuine mystery in that sense? We don't yet know what to look for or how to set about it. Because most problems in science, certainly in neuroscience and the things that I know a bit more about, um, we have a lot of ideas of how to go about it. We get better and better scanners, bet better understanding of, of, of neurotransmitters and neuromodulators and what have you. We know what kind of questions to ask. With consciousness, we seem to be in the dark. We don't even know what questions to ask. Yeah, well, I think it, as far as quantum mechanics and general relativity are concerned, I mean, we have some ideas about how we could probe for a, a theory which would uh, reconcile the two. Uh, and maybe this black hole merger that I talked about a moment ago, maybe other black hole mergers could provide us with some important clues in that direction, although no, n n no promises. But, uh, but I'm impressed uh, as a complete you know, external observer by the progress that people have made in, in terms of studying the internal processes of the brain and correlating them with, uh, with actions. You know, people can now uh, move objects with their thoughts, for example. Telekinesis is finally, finally here, and you can see these maps of how a thought you know, moves around inside the brain. Aren't these fantastic tools that are going to Absolutely cast light wonderful. on your problems? No. Oh, they might, but that's a really good example. Thank you for that. So you have this, what he means is not real telekinesis, the sort that I investigated years ago and don't think exists. Uh, you know, a, a thing that picks up your thoughts and uses um, a machine that's using energy um, to move something. Now, yes, we're learning more and more about that, but 
is that a conscious thought or an unconscious thought? We're very good at saying, oh, I thought about that consciously, or I did this action consciously, and other things I wasn't really thinking about, I wasn't really conscious of that, it just, you know, whatever. What on earth do we mean? This leads to the, the, the people who believe in the hard problem and looking for the neural correlates of consciousness are think that there's consciousness sort of attached to some neurons and not others, that was Crick's view, the consciousness neurons, or that certain processes in the brain are the ones that give rise to consciousness and others don't, or that some have qualia attached, that was um, V.S. Ramachandran said that. All this seems bonkers to me. Um, it's, it's taking the hard problem, it, it, it's accepting dualism and trying to cross the bridge. Um, or you have to have to say, give some other account, my own account would be these are post hoc attributions we make to certain actions that isn't actually a difference between conscious and unconscious. But the fact that you can find a, an activity in the brain that can cause a movement of that machine out there doesn't help us with this problem of conscious versus unconscious. Well, actually, could I just ask you another question about this? So I read about studies that show that actually things happen actions occur before one is conscious that they're going to happen. Yes. Uh, yes, Libet's famous experiment, which probably many of you know, uh, he had to do it with really simple action like this because that's all he could do using EEG in 1985. It's been done many times now with fMRI scanners and I think maybe other kinds of scans as well. But the question of timing your thought to move is difficult, but as a superficial explanation of this is that what happens is people have to decide when to flip, or in more modern experiments, to flip right or left hand. And for the flipping, you can, um, your time when they decide to move, it comes about half a second, which is a long time in brain terms, before the move, before the, um, the decision, it, the, the, the movement happens. With this left-right thing, by looking at scanner, you can tell up to eight seconds before <laughs> which choice the person's going to make, and they, ha they think they haven't decided yet. Now, does this really tell you that consciousness comes after the fact, or is it only telling you that your attribution, your de later decision, looking retrospectively about when you thought you became conscious? Um, we don't know, and there are endless debates around that. I think it is a bit of a nail in the coffin of free will, but then there's plenty of them. <laughs> Before we open up to questions, I want to finish with one final question I want to put to each of you briefly, uh, which is, uh, are there benefits of going beyond materialism? And if so, what do you think they would be? And Hilary, could I start with you? Well, there's every benefit in getting out of thinking that any single closure is going to answer everything. And I think that one of the things that Susan is very interesting about just describing that the sort of arguments therein is in with hard consciousness. But I think a lot of the time people propose things in order to fit in with the idea that they have to have uh, a, a single overall account. So panpsychism, for example, is somehow an attempt to overcome this problem of material and immaterial with, seems to me, a rather crazy supposition, but um, it, it's an attempt to try and provide some overall account. I would say, look, w we don't need to have that overall account. Sometimes the desire to create an overall account is a very valuable thing because it's a driver of forcing your closure, seeing how it works, you know, uh, um, uh, explaining uh, the acceleration of the universe by creating something that's, you know, 70% of everything. That, that, that's fine as, as, a, as a goal, but we don't have to think that we need to do that. We can operate within each frame, within each closure, and we can achieve all sorts of things, many things that aren't accounted for by materialism. 
Susan, uh, should we well, go beyond I, materialism? I, I'm slightly bothered by by the term closure. I rather prefer openness, but I suppose yeah. you could say that I'm closed in very many respects. Yeah. But when I think about a lot of my life, how do I feel about this? What, how you know, I may have to make some decision. Uh, how you know, I'm not thinking material. I'm thinking uh, mentally, emotionally, in all these other ways. When I'm thinking about somebody else, uh, worrying about them or wondering about them, then these things d don't come up in material terms. They come in other terms. It doesn't seem, and that doesn't mean it's not true, but it doesn't seem that I'm closing on one or closing on the other. They they flow into each other, and I think therefore it's um, perfectly natural to be um, living our lives in two worlds. And if you become too close on anything, you've got a problem. But I don't see why we need to. John, has your materialism shifted at all <laughs> this, this afternoon? I, I sincerely hope that it's shifting all the time. <laughs> so so I, 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 I certainly see tremendous value in, in different perspectives. And uh, I, I'm reminded of uh, Picasso, who w really you know, brought this to the fore in the artistic world, where in the same painting you see the same object from various different directions. And that gives you a completely unique uh, impression, so to speak, of the object that, you know, to my mind at least, was not present uh, in the work of, of previous artists. And uh, so we were talking earlier on about you know, patchwork descriptions of what, what I would describe as material reality. And uh, you know, I'm all in favor, for example, of general relativity and quantum mechanics as uh, complementary uh, descriptions of part of what's happening in the universe, which at some point, again, they're going to get closer and closer together. And they may well be irreconcilable. And as I said, we're going to have to modify one or the other. And I think that's going to be a, a very useful you know, syncretic experience for, uh, for physicists when that, uh, when that happens. If I might just make a comment on one other thing. So, so uh, Hillary said that uh, science had killed off religion. I, I, I'd just like to emphasize I don't think science is in conflict with, with religion. Uh, and I said earlier on. Oh, no, not that debate. Of course no, it that's is. Another one. That's another one. That's in the tent over there. <laughs> so so, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I'm not at all religious. But uh, as I commented before, Materialists deal, like physicists like myself, deal with the what, where, when, how, but not the why. And I think that Hillary and also Susan are sort of looking a little bit for a why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and uh, Guilty. And I'm not. We, we are out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, please join me in thanking our panellists very much. Thank you all. The debate for the success of materialism is clearly far from over. To find out how Philosophy for Our Times listeners can get involved with the conversation, I caught up with Lorna, one of the producers at the How the Light Gets In Festival, the world's largest music and philosophy festival. Hi, I'm Lorna, the producer of the Science Talks and Debates at How the Light Gets In 2019. She explained how the future status of materialism will be one of the big ideas at the centre of the festival and how you can get your tickets to make sure you don't miss out. We have a debate on the end of all things. Is the bedrock of reality physical, or are there some things that can't be explained in terms of physical entities and physical reductionism? To debate this, we'll be joined by head of the Particle Theory Group at the University of Oxford, Sabir Sarkar, mathematician turned philosopher, and author of How the Laws of Physics Lie, Nancy Cartwright, and world-renowned philosopher of science, currently researching the process view of life, John Dupre. 
To make sure you don't miss out on this, we're offering Philosophy for Our Times listeners 20% off the ticket price for this year's festival. Using discount code PODCAST20, you can get 20% off ticket prices for Hallow Light Gets In 2019. To hear our speakers debate the future of materialism live from Hay, get your tickets for How the Light Gets In now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were John Ellis, Hilary Lawson and Susan Blackmore.